It's good to be back. Hope you enjoyed the intermission. We're now going to continue with some groundwork uh, to help us to better interpret the book. And first issue we'll be looking at is known as genre jamming. Try to say that fast three times. <laughs> genre jamming. <laughs> We're going to be asking about things like what genre is a fancy French word, by the way, having to do with what kind of writing is the book of Revelation. If I say a newspaper, that's a particular kind of writing. If I say a road sign, it's a different kind of genre. Uh, so we want to ask the question, what kind of genre or what type of medium is the message expressed through? And this is important because in the case of Revelation, we not only have uh, one genre, we have three genres. Let's take a quick look. What kind of, uh, why is uh, the study of genre important? Because it's an agreement or a covenant between the writer and the reader. If I read a, a, a newspaper, there's a certain understanding that a newspaper article is going to, if they even use newspapers anymore, not much anymore, it's going to cover a certain kind of information. And it's going to require a certain kind of thinking on, and, and engagement on the part of the reader. So Revelation's genres, which we're going to talk about those in just a moment, are critical to understanding the book. We don't want to read the genre in the, in the improper way. We want to understand what is trying to get us to do and to understand. So they're not merely decorative, but are designed to engage us with the material. So, Revelation has three kinds. Number one, the book of Revelation is a prophecy. The book says it of itself, 1-3. The words of this prophecy, 22, 7, 10, and 18. The prophecy of this book, 22, 19. The book of this prophecy. So in order to understand the book, we have to know some things about prophecy. How does it function? What do we mean by prophecy? Prophecy is not merely or only telling about the future, predicting the future. Prophecy is also an oracle given about the present. And so to understand the book, we have to delve into, uh, or would need to delve into, we're not going to do that here tonight, but you need a good background, for example, in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, for example, the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and, and so forth. Revelation is also another kind of genre known as an apocalypse. Take two apocalypses and see me in the morning. It sounds like some kind of medicine, right? An apocalypse. What is apocalypse? Apocalypse is a kind of literature. The term itself is a modern term for a collection of writings that uh, are found primarily from about 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D., and, the, and, and so Revelation shares a lot of its features with apocalyptic literature. There were many, uh, both Christian and Jewish, apocalyptic writings uh, in that time. So, 
let's define apocalypse, and we will turn to, a, to the classic definition of an apocalypse by Mitchell Reddish. No, I'm sorry, not by Mitchell Reddish, by John Collins. Every scholar who talks about apocalyptic literature cites this passage. Let me go back here so you can read it better. Apocalypse is a genre, a literary type of a, a literary type of revelatory literature with a narrative framework, right? So the book of Revelation is a story, is a narrative. It has characters, it has plot, uh, it has sequence and so forth, in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both Temporal, we're going to unpack some of this, by the way. Temporal, insofar as it, envis it envisages eschatological salvation. So it's oriented with time and talks about the future salvation of a people. And spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural world. So Revelation was not, the book of Revelation was not alone in the time that John wrote. There were many other apocalypses that were being read and uh, uh, shared during John's time. A revelation, uh, an apocalyptic type of literature is the type of literature in which it, typically an angel appears to a prophetic being, a prophetic person, takes him on a tour, shows him a, a supernatural realm, and speaks messages to him often about the future. So it's helpful to read Revelation along with other apocalyptic books in order to understand it better. Let's look at John's situation. Uh, rather, uh, sorry, got off track there for a second. The third type of literature that Revelation presents to us is it is a letter. How many came tonight thinking Revelation is a letter? I thought it's a book of prophecy, right? Well, the book itself is framed as a letter sent to seven churches. So it is not simply about the future. It's not simply about weird beings from other places. But it is a message on how to live during the end times. And guess what, where we live right now? We live in the end times. The Apostle John told us in 1 John, little children, it is now the end times. So we've been in this realm known as the end times since the resurrection, ascension, and day of Pentecost. So it's a letter framed with an epistolary beginning and ending. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. So it's a book of prophecy. It's an apocalypse, right? A situation in which an angel escorts a, a human being on an otherworldly journey. And it's a letter uh, written to seven churches, all bundled together into one. How does the book begin? Verse 4 of chapter 1, John to the seven churches. How does it end? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Very much like uh, one of Paul's letters, right? 
and it's very likely John himself had read Paul's letters and was familiar with the letter-writing style of Paul and other early Christian writers. Are we missing a tremendous blessing by keeping a hands-off approach? Well, the, the book begins, as I've already mentioned, in chapter 1, verse 3, with a blessing, a beatitude, as this book is read aloud to the audience, to its attentive audience. Blessed is he that readeth, referring to the lector, the one who was uh, specifically uh, appointed by the church to be the, to be the one to stand before the audience and read uh, the book to the to the uh, people and reveals aspects of Jesus Christ identity and role and if we've already mentioned the apocalypse the word apocalypse the opening word of the book means to take the lid off so who wrote the book of revelation who is this individual well he's described as a a seer, a seer, or a prophet. What was a seer? A seer was someone who was given a special, a special spiritual impartation to be able to see into the spiritual realm in ways that other people couldn't see, to see things others couldn't see. What we want to adopt in our study of the book is to be able to see with the eyes of John as he shares with us his journey, the strange things he encounters, incredible symbolism, the visions that, that he uh, meets. The Gospel of John never says anywhere who wrote it. It's formally anonymous, right? According to tradition, it was John the son of Zebedee, the epistles of John nowhere expressly, ex explicitly identify their author. Though 2nd and 3rd John refer to him, he refers to himself as the elder. Yet oddly enough, John, the writer of Revelation, very clearly identifies himself. Yet it's very likely that John was the author of all three. We refer to him as John the Revelator. People have sometimes referred to me as Jeff the Revelator, a title I, of course, uh, deny emphatically. Jeff the, uh, John the Revelator. So according to tradition, and we don't have time to, to explore all this tonight, according to extra-biblical tradition, including the Apostolic Fathers in the second century, the writer of the, of the Apocalypse was none other than the Apostle John, member of the inner circle, one of Jesus' closest disciples, brother of James, and so forth. And what do we know about uh, after the time, after Jesus' ascension? He stayed in Jerusalem, the beginning of, uh, of, the, of the ministry, of, of the ministry of the apostles. He accompanied Peter. Uh, well, we do know that Jesus warned that one day, uh, the Roman armies would come, surround Jerusalem, and destroy it. Many Christians fled, so I'm kind of fast-forwarding here. According to tradition, John the Apostle left the region of Palestine, took Mary the mother of Jesus with him. Remember at the cross in John's Gospel, Jesus gives over custody of his mother uh, to the beloved disciple. 
they traveled up to Ephesus where, according to tradition, John was the bishop or pastor of the church in Ephesus. At some point, he was, he was arrested, taken into custody under the emperor Domitian, and banished to the island of Patmos. A quick Patmos story. Several years ago, and some of you were on this trip, I traveled to uh, Turkey and Greece with the highly esteemed Stephen Beersley. You know where this is going, downhill. And after visiting Ephesus, we got on the cruise ship, uh, the Sea Diamond, which eventually sh sank about six months later in the harbor of Santorini. And the whole time, Stephen and I were arguing over uh, who's the greatest apostle, because this was really his trip, and it was the Paz of Paul. And I kept threatening to rename the trip the Paz of John, because I like John, right? So we get on the cruise ship, head to the island of Patmos, and would you know, Stephen and I were cabin mates on that, on that cruise, and he refused to get off and go on to the island of Patmos, and I know it was out of spite for me. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, Patmos was a penal colony designed for political prisoners where they couldn't escape, it was too far to the shore, and according to historical records, they, were, uh, they worked in, in hard labor on that island. And while John was on this island as a, as a political prisoner of, of the state, he received the vision. Now, there are some alternative uh, uh, concepts as to John's identity. Some have said, no, he's John the Elder, a separate uh, from the Apostle John, but we won't uh, get into that too much this evening. He was a prophet, he was a seer, he was an interpreter, and he will be our tour, tour guide as he leads us through the book of Revelation. So we're going to sneak through the side entrance, and rather than jumping into the book, starting in chapter 4, remember that many people like to refer to this as the book of Revelations, oh, with an S, right? They like to skip over the first three chapters, and get to get to the good stuff. So, I would argue the most important chapters in the book for, for orienting ourselves to correctly and properly interpreting the book, those are chapters one through three. In fact, we might even argue that one through three are the key to understanding the book. It's in chapters 1 through 3 that the author discloses the reading strategy for understanding the book. It's not simply run to chapter 4, which, by the way, begins the process of opening the seals, and eventually the trumpet, you know, the, the various plagues, the trumpets sounding and the bowls being poured out. People want to run to those chapters and create a time map of the future a detailed time map of the future in which they try to correlate every verse in Revelation with some current event that's going on. And they try to place ourselves somewhere in one of those verses. There we are in 2019. This is where we're at. And if we just hop on the bus at that particular bus stop and from here on in, the, the, the events of, of our future, are we're just going to stop at each particular one. There's a lot of problems with that point of view, and I think one of the biggest problems is people 
move too quickly through the book, don't spend enough time in the first three chapters getting oriented. Chapters one through three are, are the virtual foyer of the book. Where the, you ever taken a tour, guided tour? Typically the, the, guided, the, the tour guide will orient you. They will give you a briefing. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to see. Listen up carefully. I want you all to, to follow along. There's, there's a few places on our, our tour where it might be a little hazardous to walk and so forth. So a preview of things to come. And I think we ignore chapters 1 through 3 at our own peril. So modern tourists like to do what? Get me to the feature attractions, right? I don't, want, I don't want to spend too much time listening to the tour guide. What do they know, right? Get me, get me to the star attraction as fast as we can get to it. And so a very popular model of reading the book today is to read what I, what I refer to as reading over the first three chapters. Get me to the good stuff, right? as fast as we possibly can. I want to see the visions. I want to get into the deep stuff right away. I think a better alternative model is to read lin linearly through the book, lay the groundwork in chapters 1 through 3, which provide the interpretive lens through which to view the rest of the book. If we ignore chapters 1 through 3, we ignore it to our own peril, and we are missing out on, on key interpretive insights in which to correctly and, and, and uh, responsibly interpret the book. So moving from one uh, into chapters 2 and 3, and then finally into 4 through 22. Another, another key issue that uh, will involve uh, us as we look at the book of Revelation, and that is the issue, the highly debated and contested issue of symbolism. What is, symbol, what is being told, what is symbolic? What is literal, right? So when we have these scenes unfold that, that John uh, recounts for us, are we seeing something that's literally going to happen? Are we going to, are, uh, is he talking about a literal beast, for example, or literal cataclysmic destruction, or is it symbolic? And so symbolism is key. Symbols are signs or representations in which one thing stands in for another. We don't want to be reading something uh, literally that's intended as a symbol, and we don't want to do vice versa. We want to be able to properly understand what is symbolic, what is literal, or perhaps what is actually both. And so, Revelation features extensive symbolism. And we're told this in the very opening of the book, in the first uh, uh, couple of verses, in which we are told that the angel has signified, communicated, or made known to John the message of the book. He's spoken to John uh, 
through a symbolic form of communication. He signaled it to John. It's interesting that the Greek word that's used in Revelation 1.1 is the same Greek word that's used in Daniel 22-30 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in which uh, when this stone comes down, this cosmic stone comes down and crushes this giant edifice of a, of a, of a statue representing uh, different kingdoms, uh, the explanation is given that God has signified to the king what will occur in the latter days. So a vision is described, a symbolic vision, which points to an actual events that will take place in the end. So as we read Revelation, we're being fed symbolic language, right? Something is representing some, something else. We have to ask ourselves, is, is what we're seeing and hearing, is that to be taken literally? Or is it symbolism standing in for some other reality? These are some of the, the difficult questions that, that need to be asked. Arguably, Revelation conveys its message through pictures. How many here are visual, you're visual learners? I am for one. I, I, I learn very well through seeing pictures. As we read the book of Revelation, we want to, again, see with the seer and envision, imagine in, in, our, in our minds what he is seeing and what that refers to since it's symbolism. So showing through pictures. As Greg Beal has pointed out, he's a, a major, very well-known commentator and scholar in the book of Revelation. Re the Revelation is not abstract, but pictorial. Revelation speaks through pictures shared by John that he has written for us that he, of things he has seen in his journey. The meaning of the Greek word is to show by a sign, to give or make signs for si or signals, to signify. So John, almost like, a, uh, like an abstract painter in a sense, is giving us pictures, right? Pictures to, to inform our mind uh, of, what he, of, of, the re, of the greater reality in, that he is trying to convey to us. So it's crucial that readers attempt to unpack and get to the bottom of Revelation's web of symbols within the ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman context rather than anachronistically importing modern meetings into it. What does the word anachronistic mean? It means to read something out of sync with time. For us to put our meaning into an ancient book and to uh, impress or to force a meaning on it that isn't there. The book of Revelation is not a crystal ball. That if we, if we get clever enough and and we, we keep up with Time and, New, Time and Newsweek magazine to keep up on the latest events. If we just massage the crystal ball enough, we're going to have laid out before us a detailed time map of the future. I'm not sure that's quite what the book is really about. So it's important to understand ancient symbolism, Greek symbolism, Roman symbolism, Jewish symbolism, 
of the time that John wrote to understand what those symbols meant to the original audience. So what was John's situation? He was on the island of Patmos sometime during the late first century, probably the last decade of the first century. According to one tradition, the apostle John lived into the reign of the emperor Trajan. And Trajan began reigning, as I recall, AD 98, I think. Uh, maybe AD 96, I'm drawing a blank on that. But So sometime in the, probably the 90s, John wrote uh, this during the reign of Domitian, who uh, was a rather uh, oppressive ruler, followed in the footsteps to some degree of the Emperor Nero. By the way, this is important for understanding the beasts in the book of Revelation, who probably, in the original context, were referring to the Roman emperors, particularly those that were very oppressive. And there was a very popular belief that the Emperor Nero, who was responsible for, for, for killing Christians, uh, burning them in, uh, as human torches in his garden, uh, blamed them. They became the scapegoat for the great fire in which much of Rome was leveled. And, and Nero rebuilt his palace, a great palace where the fire uh, had been. There was a long-standing tradition that the Emperor Nero was going to come back to life. And uh, some secular uh, writers of the day referred to the Emperor Nero as a beast. And so I think we're, we're starting to understand that this imagery is referring, it's symbolic, referring to actual uh, uh, events and people of that time. John was banished, and there was a, a, some level of persecution had broken out, and there was a, a, a popular belief that it was going to get worse. And we already read in Revelation 2.13 of one of the very first uh, Christian martyrs during that time, and that was uh, Antipas, who died for his faith. We also want to keep in mind the dominance of Rome. Rome was an imperial power who forced uh, people, often at the penalty of death, to burn incense and, uh, in some cases, to worship the emperor. And we know of some emperors who uh, uh, claim to be, watch this, Lord and God, comes in conflict with the great Lord and God of the book of Revelation, right? Who is the one who reigns way, way, way above that little Roman emperor sitting down on, his, on the, one of those seven hills down in Rome. Here's the God of the universe who alone can, can rightfully claim to be Lord and God. And so John was writing to people who were under pressure to cave in and to, and to uh, offer honor and in some cases worship to the emperor in Rome. What is Revelation? Revelation, first and foremost, is crisis literature. Now think about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was written during a time of crisis when uh, Israel was, the, the, the remaining tribe uh, slash tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were taken captive into Babylon. And there Daniel had to serve in the court under a foreign uh, uh, leader. And he was, and he was oppressed. They were oppressed. And where they try, uh, the, uh, the Babylonians tried to force upon them to, to Daniel and his friends to try to 
to read their literature and to eat their food and so forth, uh, to try to make them not be who they were as Jews. Uh, there is coming a time, if, if I'm reading Revelation correctly, where there will arise probably another beast, a major beast, and we will see increase, and there will be uh, increased pressure to make us conform to certain standards set by this beast. So it's crisis literature. How do you survive when your world is turned upside down, when it's no longer in vogue or safe? In fact, it's even dangerous to become a Christian, when it's no longer politically and socially acceptable. How to, how to cope and how to flourish during such times. So how do you interpret the book? Well, there's a lot of opinions and options. Is the book of Revelation a map of the future? Or is it a map of the past? Is it a map of nowhere? Or is it a map of somewhere? Let's look at some of the major interpretive views that have been prominent during the centuries following the writing of this book. First is the historicist. The book of Revelation, according to the historicist, and particularly the seven letters or oracles to the churches. For the historicist, and this, by the way, is a view that's not so widely held or popular today. For the historicist, each of those churches, in order, represents an epoch of church history, right? So if you follow the letter to, to, the, to, the, Ephes uh, the, to the church in Ephesus and you follow chronologically through the seven churches, the various characteristics and traits of each of those churches represents a certain period of time across church history. A lot of problems with that view. Um, I think it's forced, and I don't think it's what uh, John had in mind. The preterist view. This view says that, well, the book of Revelation was not written in the last decade of the first century during the reign of Domitian, but actually it was written during the time of the fall of Jerusalem, about A.D. 70. And all the cataclysmic uh, events that unfold in the book are not about the future at all, but are actually about the fall of Jerusalem when it was surrounded by Roman armies. So the preterist view says basically the book of Revelation, unless you're a partial preterist who believe that the only prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet is the, is the rapture, they believe that the book of Revelation is basically history. It's done. There's no predictive elements left. It was fulfilled in A.D. 70. The idealist says, well, it's like an impressionistic painting. Has anyone ever been to an art gallery and you've seen an impressionistic painting and you've, you've tried to interpret it? It's colors and splashes and I'm doing a terrible job of describing. I'm, I'm not a painter. I don't know much, all that much about it. But it gives you a feeling, an impression. And then, of course, some uh, are futurists. That the, and a pure futurist says, well, the book of Revelation doesn't really have anything to do 
It wasn't predicting anything about its time. It's only talking about the end of time, the very, very end of time. Well, that raises some problems because if, it, if it's only for the last and final generation, does the book of Revelation have any meaning from the time it was written up until then? Why not just keep it a closed book? Why is it even in the Bible? Let's just open it, put it in a time, store it away in a time capsule and open it up when the last generation comes because it only means something to them. All of these views have problems. All of these views have, one might argue, a little bit of a kernel of truth. I'll tell you somewhere where I might fit, if you want to label me. I'm, I'm a more of an eclectic. I kind of, I pick and choose. I'm a, hy a hybrid of each of these viewpoints. I don't hold to one strictly. Please don't call me a preterist. I'm not a preterist. But there's elements of it that might, I'm, might be useful. There's elements of the idealist approach that I find helpful. But I don't fall into any, really, any one of these particular categories. So these are some of the uh, well-known uh, views of the book that have been held uh, through the centuries. Now, did some of the early Christians have issues with the book of Revelation? Was it accepted into the biblical canon? Without question. When John wrote the book of Revelation, did Christians just welcome that book wholeheartedly and say, let's, you know, add it to, the, add it to our collection of New Testament texts? Well, broadly speaking, in the Western, in the Western church tradition, the book of Revelation gained wide acceptance. They considered it what we call canonical, part of the collection, part, uh, part of the, the, the library of books that uh, contain our, our Bible. And there, and there on the screen, I'm not going to go through these, are a number of, of uh, church fathers and others who accepted the book. But interestingly enough, the book of Revelation experienced a rocky road in the Eastern Church, and was doubted by people such as Dionysius of Alexandria, Eusebius of Caesarea, and a famous church historian, and others. So some early Christians had issues with the book. Some were not comfortable with it. Some doubted that it was that it was inspired, and so forth. So I just uh, I, I shared that so we kind of can have an idea of of how some of the early Christians. Uh, dealt with the book. Let's look at some of the special features. We've already mentioned symbolic language. What else is interesting about the book is the Greek itself is very, very peculiar. Scholars have struggled with trying to explain anomalies in the, in the Greek text. This guy who, writes, who wrote the book writes in a very, very strange way. Some have suggested he didn't know Greek very well, and it, it very likely Greek was his second language. But I think that part of the reason for the strangeness of the Greek is the strangeness of the material. He's writing in a rather some, somewhat cryptic way in Greek because the content is somewhat cryptic. Another special feature of the book is you really got to know the Old Testament to properly understand the book. It is inundated and is with Old Testament uh, uh, references and echoes. And in fact, arguably, it is the most jam-packed New Testament book with Old Testament references. 
from beginning to end, the backdrop to, to help understand the book is to be familiar with the Old Testament stories. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, play a special role in the book. If you want to understand the plagues of the book of Revelation, many of them have, have uh, correspondences with the plagues that God poured out on the Egyptians uh, right before the Exodus and so forth. So you've got to know the Old Testament. We've already mentioned the book of Daniel and some of the other prophets. Very, very important for understanding the concepts and, language, and uh, language of the book. What about the structure of the book of Revelation? How is it structured? Well, this is one of those examples where you ask 20 people, you get 20 different answers. There's no agreement on how the book is structured. There's no consensus. And the question, the, the key question is the book of Revelation meant to be taken chronologically. For example, we've already mentioned the opening of the, of the seals uh, followed later in the book by the sounding of the seven trumpets, followed later in the book by the pouring out of the seven bowls. Are those supposed to be, if, if this is speaking of some future event, are those supposed to be taken in chronological order? Or, as, as some have suggested, uh, perhaps the structure is meant to be taken uh, as recapitulation. In other words, the first series of plagues uh, speak to, the, to some kind of future judgment on, on mankind, but the second series are actually telling about that same unfolding of judgments, but in a, from a different angle, and all of them essentially end with a eschatological earthquake and storm. So maybe they're not unfolding one after the other after the other, but are actually meant to be talking about the same end time cataclysmic event and so forth. We also notice patterns of seven, and some scholars will suggest uh, the best way to divide up the book of Revelation is in seven. Some suggest that the book of Revelation is like a play and thus has various acts and scenes just like a, a, a theater-oriented production would have. Let me uh, offer for you a suggested outline. This is by no means the only way to outline the book, but I think is very helpful. Uh, this comes from Merrill Tenney. Prologue, Christ communicating. Vision one, Christ in the church. Vision two, Christ in the cosmos. Vision three, Christ in conquest. Vision four, Christ in consummation. And finally, the epilogue, Christ challenging. So this is the, kind of a way to, to if you want to describe it this way, flying up in a, in, a, in a balloon and looking down and seeing the, land, the, the, the uh, lay of the land, the, the overall landscape, the way in which the book unfolds. And, and again, there's many, many other options for dividing up the book. So, where do we go from here? Where, uh, how do we approach the book? And, and uh, in our, in our uh, next lessons coming up in the coming weeks, we'll be, we'll be taking a much closer look, working through parts of the text of the book of Revelation. 
But this lesson tonight has been primarily designed to get us oriented. How do, how do we think about the book? How do we envision the book? How do we grapple and wrestle with some of the challenges of the book? My suggestion is not to do this path, path number one. Read it like it's a supermarket tabloid. Just the way a lot of people read the book. I think I can suggest a better way, and that is to enter through the gate, which we will do. We will uh, spend some concerted, uh, sustained time looking carefully at chapters 1 through 3, entering into the virtual gate of the city of the book of Revelation. To consider it in its dramatic uh, unfolding, instead of thinking of, of, it, of the book as little proof text for this eschatological uh, scenario or that eschatological scenario. Let's follow along the contours of the landscape of the book and to capsule through time, to journey back with John and to experience these sights and sounds, to see what he sees, to feel what he feels, to ride the, ro the, the scary, frightening roller coaster ride of the book within its historic context. So if Revelation only conveys meaning and relevance, uh, yeah, relevance to those living in the 21st century, one wonders what, if anything, it meant to the original audience of the congregations addressed in Revelation 2 through 3. My argument, again, is Revelation meant and Revelation means. It meant something to that first audience, and we need to track closely with that, and we need to walk in their shoes if we're going to fully uh, receive and embrace its message. But those people are gone. We can't be stuck in the past. We need to uh, 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 embrace the book today. So the inspired words of Revelation spoke, past tense, to its first audience and continued to speak to every subsequent revelation, uh, uh, generation. So each of us, every generation essentially has to wrestle with a book, has to deal with a book. It's God's word speaking an oracle to us, spiraling into the future. And so if we just stay in the past, if we only, only are historians, if we only tether our ship to the past, then the book only means something to a bygone generation. But the same, thankfully, the same God, the one who is, was, and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, that great God still lives today and still speaks through these inspired words into our very different, in many ways, very different situations that we live in today and teaches us about uh, the nature of spiritual warfare and so forth. So nothing, in a sense, has changed as history progresses in a spiraling movement toward its ultimate telos or its ultimate end. So the end of, thing, of all things is at hand. What does Revelation teach us? How to live. Wow, so you're saying it's not just about being some kind of Sherlock Holmes and creating this detailed time map of the future. No, it's about living during the end times not to try to create some detailed map. And P Peter wrote, wrote this in 1 Peter, Since the end of all things is at hand, Christians should therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things have fervent love 
one for another. This is Peter writing 2,000 years ago, telling Christians what the end is near. Don't be troubled. Don't be disturbed. Don't be anxious about it. Live for God. Keep, uh, keep in prayer. Uh, watch. Yes, be attentive to world events. Know what's going on in the world uh, around you. But keep faithful to all of that. And uh, so we're to resist cultural pressures. Running out of time here. So Revelation calls the church to steadfastly resist accommodation. The culture is pushing on us, pressuring us. Be like us, right? Live like we live. But the church constantly has in mind what? He's coming back. The end is near. We can't live like the, like the world wants us to live. We can't be conformed to their image. So we are to remain faithful even during intense pressure and persecution and stand boldly as a witness for the truth. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is presented as the faithful, what? what? The faithful witness, right? John is a witness to the things that he has seen. We have to keep our faithful witness going through difficult times. And as we've already mentioned we need to focus on the one who is the subject of the book. From its first verse onwards, Revelation clearly emphasizes Christ. Christological, Christ-centered focus. Whatever we do with the book, it's about him. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to remain faithful and true to the one about whom the book is presenting we can't afford to lose sight of the book's chief character. If Revelation is about anything, it's about Jesus Christ, our almighty Savior and King and his sovereignty over history and the church. Well, I think we're going to have to close with that. It is 9.30, so I'm going to ask you to stand. There are a lot of resources for further study in the book. And as you're watching the screen up ahead, and we'll pray in dismissal in just a moment, um, I don't think we need to be afraid of some of the uh, uh, resources that are available. Uh, just some books on the topic that I highly recommend, Revelation and the End of All Things by Craig Kester, now in its second edition. Grant Osborne has written what I think is one of the finest commentaries on the book of Revelation. In the Basegetical Commentary series, Greg Beale, uh, has uh, written another very good commentary in the book of Revelation. Greg Beale is one of the uh, world, leading world experts on the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. If you have a lot of time on your hands, David Owney's three-volume uh, series in the Word Biblical Commentary. These are some, some of these are fairly technical, so if you, uh, you'd like to talk to me maybe later about some, some, which recommendations best fit your reading needs. Um, just a few more here. There's, uh, well, we don't really have time to get, get into all these. Just talk to me later, and we'll, uh, we'll look at some of these. Prayer, shall we? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Revelation. We thank you for your uh, voice of guidance and strength 
that we receive in this book. We pray, Lord, as over the next coming weeks as we delve into the text of the book, that, Lord, you will open up our understanding, that you will instruct us in wisdom as to how we should uh, properly uh, live our lives during this end time as we await your soon coming. And we give you praise and glory. Can we just thank him this evening for his presence among us? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. You are glorious. We give you praise and honor. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Well, Brother Fulbert, did you have any closing remarks? You are dismissed. Thank you very much for your attention this evening. Yes, sir. Oh, let me...